Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. Man, talk about how easy it is to forget a month has gone by. It's been a bit since my last episode, so thanks to everybody who's still subscribed. Of course, I've been putting out a ton of premium content, actually, behind the paywall at beenawake.com. So if you're not already a premium subscriber, do me a favor and head over there. Take a look at it. You can get a two-week free trial or sign up. Get your first year 50% off. Uh, the There's a slight shift to the show, so we'll get some of that out of the way. Don't forget... This is live right now. If you're catching the replay, this is live on YouTube, live on Twitter, and for the first time, live on Instagram. And I'll be honest, I have no idea how it's going to look on Instagram, and I'm going to check right now and kind of see. But I don't know how this is going to look on Instagram. I'm using like a third-party thing because Restream doesn't really work with it. But I figured I may as well go live, let people know that we're recording a new episode, and uh, of course, maybe take some comments if you're in the chat. I don't know that I'll be able to get them all uh, from Instagram. But anyway, we've got three stories that I want to cover, and that kind of goes with the different shift in the show. So far, the show has been like I do the writing, and then I write, I talk about what I write about. And, uh, well, things are getting busier for me, and I still love doing this podcast. And so I'm going to do what everybody else does and read things that other people write. And that's not to say I won't write anymore, but it is to say I'm going to start using more news stories to uh, basically give you guys the information you need to better understand the news cycle, because that is truly, truly speaking, what I'm passionate about. In addition to my natural exploration of philosophy, as it, as it relates to doing this show, I love to give... I want to give you, the listener, the viewer, a perspective on things that you're not going to hear elsewhere, something that diffuses the rhetoric that we hear on cable news, on Twitter and elsewhere. And, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully a perspective that gives you a greater and deeper insight into the world into the world that we see around us. So for that, you can kind of see very very clearly in the episode title what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Elon Musk. We're going to talk about Ukraine, and we're going to talk about abortion. So specifically, we're going to talk about the fact that Elon Musk is is saying that he's going to buy Twitter and it looks like the deal is going to go through. We're going to talk about the recent government funding of the war in Ukraine and how we've all but declared war on a country like Russia, which should give everybody pause if you care about peace in the world. At this show, we care about peace in the world. And finally, we're going to talk about the raging white-hot culture war issue of abortion. Of course, in recent news, in case you haven't heard, there was an unprecedented leak from the Supreme Court, from the SCOTUS, that said that they are planning to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so we won't necessarily get into the nitty-gritty of the legal decision of that. There's other places you can go, but there's a few angles that I want to take talking about that in terms of the broader culture war. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. First story tonight, guys, we want to talk I want to talk about the war in Ukraine. And I want to hit on a few different points. So one of the first points that I want to hit on is uh, is actually something I initially put out in a tweet which was like, so our oligarchs are upset with their oligarchs. Now you've probably if you've paid any close attention If you paid any close attention to the news cycle at the moment, you would have heard something about Russian oligarchs. And in fact, it's been a very big talking point of the Biden administration, how they want to make this 
uh, make the Russian oligarchs feel pain. Right now, who are these people really? So as far as I know, and you know, if I get some of the history wrong, please feel free to correct me. But as far as I know, these Russian oligarchs are, you know, maybe former mobsters or really just people who sprung up in the in the collapse of the Soviet Union as as business moguls of a kind. So they controlled different industries and they became very, very powerful as a result. And then as you see Putin's rise to power in, in conjunction with that in um in in Russian politics, you start to see them, you know, you start to see basically Russia go from this, you know, almost almost this this land without a state, right? Because the collapse of the Soviet Union was so instrumental to the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st. And we're really, I think you can almost look at the situation and say we're starting to deal with the we're starting to deal with those ramifications now. The same way in which you might look at the Middle East and see that we're dealing with the same ramifications in the breakup of like the Ottoman Empire and later the British Empire as well. But so we hear a lot about these oligarchs in Russia. And of course, we hear a lot about how they have big yachts and expense and they like expensive things and they do expensive things all the time. And what's very interesting is the way the U.S. government has been has been highlighting those people in particular. Right. Not the not the standard Russian person who got kicked off of Instagram or wasn't able to use their Netflix password anymore, or, you know, or wasn't able to go to McDonald's or whatever it was. Not, not the regular everyday people, right? We have to focus on the oligarchs because these oligarchs are supposed to be the the baddest of the bad, I suppose. I, and, and for what reason? Well, I guess because they're rich and they're rich non-Americans who don't do the will of the American government. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm sure you could, if you wanted to run me through each of the people, I'd be like, yeah, that guy sucks. This guy's bad. This guy's bad. But what I tweeted out, and this was, this was gosh, all the way probably back in March, was something to the effect of that, oh, our oligarchs are pissed off at what their oligarchs are doing. Got it. And if you're wondering who our oligarchs are in the United States, well, I mean, you can look at it a few different ways. You can really, in the United States, we don't have, we don't have as much of the, um, well, it's not quite as obvious, I suppose you could say who the actual uh, influential oligarchs are. Certainly you can point to some people, right? And you can just look at like the richest people in the world, see which ones are American. And I think you can rightly consider those people oligarchy. We did a very deep dive into the conversation between Oprah and um, what was it, what's her face? Meghan Merkel, formerly Meghan Merkel, now like not even a princess, but still kind of a princess, which is interesting. These people all run in the same circles, right? It was a free interview, but of course they were promoting their launch on Apple TV of all the of all the projects that they were working on. And what I wrote in that piece that I wrote back then, as I said, O is for oligarchy. So we understand. So if if we don't understand, let's let's say let's say what the word oligarchy means. Oligarchy means rule by a few. So you would have democ dem dem democracy, demoarchy, rule by many, monarchy, rule by one, oligarchy, rule by few. In and and in fact, I would argue, historically speaking, we always see a rule by few. Even if there is an absolute king, he has a court which he goes, which he, um, which he relies on for advice and a lot of times for funding. Historically speaking, and even in a democracy, we see people elected to office who become very, very powerful and who basically have no, who have no need to respond to the will of the people. So really, we always have oligarchy, and there have been Princeton studies done. Which, which we've covered on this show before as well, denoting and making, and making very plain 
that as far as the United States is concerned, it is effectively an oligarchy. There are some things in the United States government that you cannot change through the will of the people, that you cannot change through a popular election. So when we start to look at world events, right, we've talked about, I talked about my crash course in geopolitics, and I've just pointed out that, especially for the American audience, because America has, has been so powerful on the world stage, most Americans have never had to pay close attention to geopolitics. Most Americans can basically just say, well, what did the president say? And if I know what the president's saying, then I kind of know the direction things are going to go. That was really torn on its head when Putin decided to invade the Donbass region. Oh, excuse me. When Putin decided to first declare independence for the Donbass region and then, and then invade it in eastern Ukraine. That was, that was, that was a turn in, that was a turn in geopolitics, something that we had not seen really in, 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 our, in our lifetimes. You can point to Georgia. You can point to the invasion in Georgia. You can point to the invasion of Crimea or the, or the annexation of Crimea, if you will. You can point to those things, but this protracted conflict that as we talk on May the 14th, 2022, in the year of our Lord, as we look at this, as we look at this conflict months later, we see it is still going on. So it's our oligarchs versus theirs. And the point here to make is that it's always our oligarchs, or it's always a set of oligarchs versus another set of oligarchs. So who are the oligarchs in these situations? Well, on the American side, we might not know every single name, but certainly I think we can point to major figures in the U.S. government and rightly call them oligarchs. These are people who have been in control of the United States government in one form or another, had positions of power and influence at the highest levels of government for a long time. Just today, we saw Mitch McConnell and a delegation of Republicans following in Nancy Pelosi's footstep and a delegation of Democrats going to Ukraine and praising them for their defense of democracy. Those are two people right there, by the way, that I think we can rightly consider to be some kind of American oligarch, even if they're not as rich as the Russian oligarchs. Somebody like Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell have crafted U.S. policy going on 20-something years. They're both in their 70s and decrepit at this point, and they just want, I don't know, what is it that they want? Well, if you go and you watch a documentary like Ukraine on Fire, you can start to see that maybe there's just a lot of corruption in a country like Ukraine that traces back as far as the, before the fall of the Soviet Union. And maybe there's a lot of corruption in the, in the U.S. government as well. And maybe that corruption is part of the reason why, why the U.S. government is so keen on maintaining Ukraine's borders. Or perhaps it's just a racket, as most wars are, and they are just attempting to enrich themselves by whatever way they can. See, historically speaking, Americans, right? We can, we can look in my own life for this, right? We have, the, we have the terror wars. But historically speaking, Americans have tended to come together during times of conflict and during times of war. And in fact, it is considered, it was always considered good policy that if you could, if there was a scandal going on or something happening in the world, that, you know, maybe a quick war or a quick uh, something like that would actually bring the people together. I don't think you can look at the American polity and make that same claim today. Sure, yes, very much so. There are plenty of old people who are being duped by cable news and the likes of Sean Hannity and others into thinking that this is a just war of some kind. But I want to point out next a contradiction in how, in how we, the average American, perceives things versus how our elite perceive things versus how our oligarchs perceive things, if you will.
And of course, that has to do with the ideas of borders. Now, if you don't know, the sta- if you were to go and take a political science course, as far as I understand it, and this is what happened to me when I took a political science course, you were taught the idea of a nation state. And the concept is basically this, that ever since World War I, and certainly after World War II, we have a world free from monarchy. We have a world free from the unjust rule of kings, they will say. And now in the modern world, we have rule by consent. We have rule by the people, so-called. Again, we're, we're not really too concerned with formal analysis on this show. So I'm doing the duty that I must do, which is to tell you how things will be taught to you so I can show you the contradictions. And part of that conception in this new world order, this world order where we have a United Nations body and a North Atlantic trade, uh, uh, whatever, what does the T stand for in NATO? We have a NATO, we have a UN. What do we have in this world? Well, we have nation states. And what is a nation state? Well, a nation state is the idea that the state, the monopoly on violence within a society, is governed and bound by a nation of people. What constitutes a nation of people? Really, it's whatever you want it to, but generally speaking, it's supposed to be some kind of ethnic group or people who generally share a common territory together. Fair enough? So that's the idea of a nation state, and this is supposed to be a more stable form of government. And so we see the nation states of, you know, in the Middle East of Iraq and Afghanistan, and most of those borders were drawn by other people, not the people who live there. And certainly we see that in Africa and we see that in the United States and we see that in, and we see that less so in Europe because Europe was, Europe's borders were pretty well sorted out before, you know, the, the first and second world war. So we have this concept of the nation state, and this is what you'll learn in a political science course, that the nation state is part of the bedrock of Western civilization. Now, I don't quite know if we could really say that, because if we look at Western civilization historically, we've seen a mix of different types of governments, not all of which have been nation states. So certainly we can say for the modern, for the modern West, this, this, you know, for the modern ephemeral U.S. government plus some European allies, we see those people as being the ones who, you know, who, who benefit the most from this conception of a nation state. Ukraine itself is a consequence of the creation or the idea or the myth, if you will, of of a nation state. Why? Well, because the Ukrainian people, because Ukraine has never really existed as a country. There now there has been a people there, but if you go back historically, they've generally been because of because we might say because of the land, because they are so they are so well placed in Europe, and because their land is generally speaking some of the most rich for farming in the world. They have been effectively conquered by one people or another throughout all of their history. And you might think that this war currently is something akin to a war for Ukrainian independence. However, I think a look at the evidence and and really just viewing this thing in a different way than what's presented to you in the press shows us the case that that it's not. And for that, I want to divert from the Ukrainian border, from the border between Ukraine and um from the border between Ukraine and uh, Russia. And I want to go to the border between U.S. and Mexico. Well, that might seem like a stretch at first. How are we going to talk about these two things in the same way? Well, the reason is this. If we look, we see very clearly that politicians in the U.S., broadly speaking, despite the stamping of the feet of some people, don't really care about illegal immigration. They just don't. 
And in fact, for a long time, most Americans outside of the border states didn't really care about illegal immigration. It's never been a particularly important issue. Now, one thing that I could that I should do some homework on so I can give you the cite the citations for it, but just again speaking from my memory today. See, I remember growing up the whole the whole concept of borders and the whole concept of people crossing the border had a lot to do with them making it safely somewhere inside of the United States. So they would cross the border and find, you know, with the coyotes or whoever it would be bringing them across, and they would eventually reach some sort of safe household that wasn't connected to the government in any way because the act of crossing the border without proper without proper documentation is considered illegal. Why? Because the sovereignty of the nation state is considered tantamount is considered sacred under the conception of the way that you are that you were taught politics. So the question remains why were you taught politics that way if the US government doesn't actually care about their border. And it would be my contention by the way that they don't. Right? You could say oh but Trump and it's like yeah sure but how much did he actually accomplish? See it does see again we see here even with the most powerful position in the world, the presidency, the president of the United States, he is still but one man or potentially one day one woman who cares they are still it is still a single individual there is the mass of people around them that actually make things happen and what we saw during the trump administration was that deep state if you will that permanent government apparatus fighting back against the changes that he wanted to make so even donald trump couldn't get it done he couldn't secure the border and it's gotten worse and it's gotten worse in one serious way and that serious way is basically taking advantage of an international accord around refugee status. Now, I happen to know a little bit about this because of my family's history. See, my family did, half of my family did come to this country as refugees, as Cuban refugees from the, from the, communist, uh, from, from the communist hellhole that is Cuba, unfortunately. It was actually, as an aside, I went to a couple baseball games this week and I was just thinking like, like how, I'm, a, I'm a White Sox fan, right? For the most part, to the extent that I watch sports. And the White Sox is like, the White Sox are like filled with Cuban players and I love it. It's, it's, it's fun. They're great. They're great ball players. And I'm thankful that people like that can come to this country and live a much better life than they would have lived in a place like Cuba. But it did occur to me. I was like, man, you know, if it hadn't been for that communist revolution, what would Cuba look like today? And I think you would basically see a beautiful Island that with, with a thriving tourism business and probably dare I say a major league baseball team. It was considered before the revolution, it was considered actually a hotspot for training and for people from New York to go down to. So where, so where was I going with this? We're talking about the conception of borders. And when my family came here, they actually went to Mexico first. As, see, at the time, you couldn't go from, you couldn't, at this point, you couldn't fly from Cuba to the United States directly and, and because the communists didn't want people to leave, or at least this is the way the story was told to me. See, instead, they had to lie and say that they were going on business or they were going on vacation to Mexico City. So they flew to Mexico first. And when they got to Mexico, they went to the U.S. Embassy and they requested asylum status. And they requested asylum status because the United States at this point, if not completely, had begun their policy, what was called, what was commonly referred to as wet foot, dry foot. Which is to say, as soon as a Cuban citizen stepped foot off, you know, either off of a boat onto another piece of dry land that was the United States or elsewhere, they were considered they were considered refugees. 
They could. The United States government technically said they wouldn't do anything if people were on boats, if people were on the island of Cuba. But if they stepped foot somewhere else, they were granted refugee status. Now, that was great for Cubans. And you could say, well, but what about other countries? And that's fair. But we're have. But I'm telling the story right now, and this is my show. So when the when my family came to Mexico initially, they went to the consulate and they requested asylum status and they had to wait in Mexico until that status was granted. And in fact, I was, I was recently told a story um, by my great aunt who, who, as far as I know, is listening to this idea. She was telling me how they lived in those times. Right. And the conversation kind of came up because we were talking about a trip and how everybody wanted to have their own rooms. And she was saying, you know, it's just so funny because everybody wants their own room now. And, we growing up, we all slept in the same room together. And when we came, when we went to Mexico, we were all crowded in a small hotel room and we didn't care and we didn't care. And I think it's, it's just, it's always good to remember kind of where your family came from and how lucky you are to maybe sit there and say, yeah, I can, all, I, I need my own room when I travel. But of course my family had to spend some time in Mexico before they came to the United States. And the reason for that was the asylum laws are pretty clear. And in asylum laws, you have to first safe country you reach is technically the country you must claim asylum in. Unless you can be granted asylum somewhere else, as in the case of going to the U.S. consulate in Mexico as a Cuban citizen during the fall, during the Cuban, during the communist revolution in Cuba. Again, as far as I understand, this is the U.N. charter. This is what the U.N. charter says we have to do with refugees. So what happens today Again, maybe I'm wrong, right? Because this, some of this is what I remember as a child versus what I see as an adult. But I remember as a child, the concept or the argument around illegal immigration had to do with people crossing the border and kind of sneaking into the country. Well, they don't sneak into the country anymore. See, what, these, what the NGOs who actually fund a lot of this mar- migration have done is they've basically, they've basically short-circuited the system. They've gamed the system in such a way that... People now just cross the border and claim asylum status, even though that asylum status is if, if they've passed through any other country but their own, technically that status isn't uh, valid. However, they still are entitled to a court hearing under U.S. law. So you can. So, so again, the system has been gamed. See, this is um, as we're as we're kind of talking about this and we're going to lead up and we're going we're, we're to get back to Ukraine here in just a second. I just want to point this out is, you know again, to the point, is the actual method by which people have come across has changed. And so now they can say, well, see, they aren't just economic migrants, even though most of the people are. And and by the way, I don't fault anybody who wants to come to the United States and earn a better living. I get it. I would probably do the same thing in in their shoes more often than not. So you see a lot of these people who want to come to the United States because they're economic migrants, but they claim to be refugees of one kind or another. And by a refugee, it means you are in some kind of you are in some kind of political persecution or other kind of persecution in your home country, religious persecution. Although interesting enough, the government doesn't actually do a lot for religious persecution for, from people from like Europe, let's say, or other parts of the world. There was a case I, I recall in particular of German homeschoolers who wanted to come to the U.S. and those people were uh, were denied entry on religious grounds. Uh, refugee status on religious grounds. The reason being that the German government was basically banning the practice of homeschooling. Shows what a free and democratic country they are. Hmm? 
So we're so we're talking about the U.S. border and we're talking about how things change. And it's a very common rhetorical talking point on the part of Republican politicians who don't actually care about the border to say that we need to secure it. And of course, I do believe that the average I think the average conservative, your average America first right wing, mildly constitutional person probably doesn't. Some, some people will disagree with me and I get why they are. But for the most part, they don't actually care too, too much about having an immigration system in the U.S. They actually think it's probably OK that people want to come here and that immigration in a certain form is fine. You see, immigration has been tur- was turned into a wedge issue because it benefits the elites. Even somebody like Milton Friedman pointed this out as far back as the 80s in his Free to Choose series. He said back then very clearly that, that, that illegal immigration benefits two groups. It benefits the political class and it benefits the uh, big corporations who need cheap labor. And of course, if you're an illegal immigrant, you're going to work for cheaper labor because you don't have legal recourse to make sure that you're paid a certain amount. Also, people who tend immigrants tend to work for a lower wage because they're used to a lower standard of living. So, and I've talked about this. I, I was interviewed by Carlos Abelar um, before. Shout out Paloma CBD, uh, Paloma Verde CBD. Um, but him and I were supposed to talk about it and the immigration, and then and then we never did. So I guess right now I'll just say quickly: there's two different ga- there's a game being played with these migrants, and I don't fault them for being victims of that game. The same way I really don't fault the average low information voter for getting swept up in the race of American politics. See, there are there are coordinated efforts between non governmental organizations and rich and powerful people who want to see a steady stream of immigration come into a country like the United States of America because it helps destabilize the country. And that's, and again, that's not, I'm not trying to denigrate the immigrants here. This is just the reality of what happens when you put people from different cultures together in the same land. And isn't it interesting how that concept goes in, that, that's in stark concept to the idea of the nation state that I kind of pointed out to you earlier, that you're going to learn if you go and take a political science course. So as a piece of better sense-making, let's not look at the borders drawn on the map as the governments want us to have it. Let's look at people's actions and say that, that right there is where the border is. So here's the question, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the been awake crowd. What borders are we defending today? Hmm? What borders are the United States government defending? Of course, they're defending the borders of Ukraine. They're defending the borders of Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia. Why? For the same reasons why we why we defended the borders of yeah uh, what, what was that country Kuwait against Iraq. Why we deposed the leader of Iraq and Afghanistan and impl- instituted our own governments that fell our own government by the way in, in Afghanistan that fell almost immediately after we left. We're defending the borders of Ukraine because Ukraine is willing to play ball where Russia won't. See, because our elites, our oligarchs, have certain things they want the world to be doing right now. And Ukraine is more than comfortable in doing so. Now, you notice here, we're not getting into the specifics of the war. We're not getting into the nitty gritty of who's doing what, who's doing worse things in, in terms of war. Why? Because it's war. And it's something that a good government should be preventing. 
And given that the United States government has said, and I have the article right here, this is this is this is the most this is one of the most recent things that's come out. Actually, you know what? I want to do this first. So I have this from the Department of Defense, defense.gov. Since June 2021. Hmm, interesting that that's before the before the actual invasion, isn't it? Since June 2021, the Department of Defense has held in the US government has has provided Ukraine over 1,400 Stinger anti-aircraft systems, over 5,500 Javelin anti-armor systems, over 14,000 other anti-armor systems, over 700 switchblade tactical unmanned aerial systems, 90 155 millimeter howitzers, and over 200,000 155 millimeter artillery rounds, a howitzer is an artillery weapon. 72 tactical vehicles to tow 155mm howitzers, 16 Mi-17 helicopters, hundreds of armored high-mobility multi-purpose wheeled vehicles, 200 M113 armored personnel carriers, over 7,000 small arms, over 50 million rounds of ammunition, 75,000 sets of body armor and helmets, 121 Phoenix Ghost tactical unmanned aerial systems, laser-guided rocket systems, Puma unmanned aerial systems, unmanned coastal defense vessels, 17 counter artillery radars, four counter mortar radars, two air surveillance radars, M18A1 Claymore anti-personnel munitions, C4 explosives demolition for obstacle clearing. By the way, have you noticed that they stopped providing the count as we go lower on the list? Probably, if I were to guess, because that number is so much greater than the 50 million rounds of ammunition that they're talking about above. C4 explosives and demolition equipment for obstacle clearing, tactical secure communication systems, night vision devices, thermal imagery systems, optics, and laser range finders, commercial sat- satellite imagery services, explosive ordnance disposal protective gear, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear protective equipment, medical supplies to include first aid kits, electronic jamming equipment, field equipment, and spare part, all so that Ukraine can protect their borders. All so that Ukraine can protect their borders. Now you might say, well, migrants coming up are certainly categorically different than an army crossing a border, and I would agree with you. But again, I've already as I've already pointed out here, the modern story of immigration is not the law is not the myth of Ellis Island. It it just isn't. That doesn't mean that the people, that doesn't mean that the individual person who says, who who's, who lives in poverty, let's say, and, and really they don't actually live in poverty because a lot of times, a lot of times this costs them money. So these are people who raise a few thousand dollars, maybe more, so that, so that one of these groups will take them up through the border. And we know that the UN is giving them money as well, right? Because the UN did this in the European migrant crisis, which was a result of the US government's war. And, and it's fair to say that some of the central, central and South American immigration that we're seeing is also an effect of U.S. government policy. But see, the difference between Ukraine and our southern border is that the U.S. government does not consider the southern border the sovereign territory of the United States. Why? Because the U.S. government, for as long as we've been alive, as long as I've been alive, has considered the world their borders, has considered the world to be their petri dish their petri dish with which they can play political games with which they can in- engage in corruption and other methods so that they can enrich themselves let's not forget 
let's not forget why they tried to impeach the former president Donald Trump was because of corruption in Ukraine. See, I don't I don't actually think it's an accident that that happened. See, I actually do think there's been a lot of corruption between high levels of the US government and the Ukrainian government and a lot of people have gotten rich as a consequence. A lot of our oligarchs have gotten rich as a consequence. And what do we say our mission is? I actually, you know, just today, I got a text message from a friend. Um, I, I, I got a text message from a friend who was at uh, the graduation ceremony, I guess, at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. So these were comments made by the U.S. ambassador to the end that, the U, that, the U, that Ukraine is fighting for U.S. democracy, that Putin is scared of freedom. Food and gas is expensive because of Putin, and climate change is causing food shortages. This is the line the the people at the top are trying to feed to those of us at the bottom. And the problem is we have other methods of sense making to where we understand just how big of liars they are. And I say that's a problem, by the way, not because I want them to be right, but because it means they're going to have to they're going to have to turn the screws on those of us who disagree soon enough. So what is it that so so most recently, right? There was forty billion dollars, I think, is the number now that we're actually spent that we're actually sending to 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 Ukraine. We're rebooting some buy some uh, lend lease program from the World War II that we have to that we that we use to defeat the Nazis. Ironic, isn't it? Because you know part of the reason why Russia invaded Ukraine is because of their own Nazis. This proxy war is dangerous, ladies and gentlemen. The reason why it's dangerous is very simple. There is one other nation on Earth that has as many tactical nuclear weapons as the United States, and that's Russia. China as well, but China technically has more hydrogen bombs, which are even worse than nuclear weapons, if you can believe that. So we've been providing all of this aid, all of these weapons to this country and we're and and we even have congressmen. We had the majority leader in the House, so the top Democrat in the House of Representatives, saying that it's a problem that Republicans have wanted to hold up these spending bills because we are at war. And I ask, as an American who cares about the Constitution, where is that declaration of war? Of course, it'll never come because they don't care about the Constitution and they don't care about the borders of the United States. We see this in their actions. They're willing to spend billions of dollars in a country that, has, that is of no concern to the United States. Why? Because the nation state is supposed to be sovereign. Ah, so who's the one who says the nation state is sovereign? Well, it's the United States. And so now we see why we're defending the borders of, of, of Ukraine. We're defending the borders of Ukraine because to have them fall will be would be to challenge the authority of the United States, to challenge, and not even the United States, right? To challenge the authority of the United States government that has waged war since the fall of the Soviet Union across the world. That is the reality of the world that we've lived in. And that is why I say the borders you defend are your external borders. This is really, by the way, a new level of proxy war. This is the most advanced proxy war that we have seen in recent American in, in recent history. And in fact, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said recently 
that the U.S.'s goal in Ukraine is to see Russia weakened so it no longer has the capacity to invade its neighbor. Do, do you understand? Probably not, because I barely do. I don't think we, any of us quite understand just how much it would take to actually create a system, uh, to create a world in which Russia is so weakened that it can't invade its neighbors anymore. See, I suspect that while the Russian army probably isn't in the greatest of shape, that there's probably a lot more they can do, and certainly there's a lot more ordinance that they could launch into Ukraine if they really wanted to decimate the population. But where do you get this sort of analysis? You don't get it on NBC, ABC. You're not seeing the old, you're not seeing the boomers of the world quite grasp this message because they don't quite understand the world being different. See, I like to talk about cracks in the foundation, and that foundation is the post-World War II order that we have all benefited from in our life. My, liberta- my, my, my essay about the post-libertarian moment had a lot to do with this as well. And if you look closely, you can see these cracks in the foundation, and this is one of them. The Russian, Make no mistake, the Russian-Ukraine conflict is one of those cracks in the, in the U.S. government's ability to, spread their, to, spread their, um, to wield their power across the world. I would prefer to live in a country that was calling for peace. I would prefer to live in a country where we had a president who was going on national TV and saying, it's time for you guys to set aside your petty differences, and it's time for you to come to the table so we can negotiate a settlement that will benefit all parties. Most importantly, the people of your country who are you are sending to die at the moment. Instead, our government is arming one side of the conflict against another in, a, in, 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 what, in what they have said. This, was, uh, this is another quote I have here. Former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev accused the United States on Wednesday of wage, waging a proxy war against Russia after the House approved a $40 billion aid package for Ukraine and said, the, and then said that our economy would suffer here in the U.S. He, was, he said Tuesday was a bid to, to, quote, to deal a serious defeat to our country, the Russian country, and limit its economic development and political influence in the world. He said it won't work. The printing press by which America is constantly increasing its already inflated government debt will break faster. He's right. See, Putin's not the reason for inflation. If you believe that, then I'm not sure how the hell you found this show. But Putin's not the reason for inflation. The reason for inflation is that we've inflated our currency almost out of existence throughout the course of the pandemic. Most of like something like 20% of the U.S. dollars ever produced were produced in the year 2020. And we're dealing with those consequences now. Supply chains, which had taken years to build, were torn down in in a matter of months because these people at the top want to effectively reshape the world in an image of their choosing. Let's talk about Elon buying Twitter. Man, I did not think I was going to spend 40 minutes talking about, uh, talking about that. That's funny. So I want to hit a few points with this. So obviously, if you guys haven't seen the news, let's, let's talk about what's actually happening. Elon Musk has said that he wanted, he, he became, first he became a major stockholder, right? He became the largest stockholder of uh, Russia, uh, of Russia. He became the largest stockholder of Twitter. So a majority stockholder was going to be on the board, decided not to be on the board, and then decided he was going to buy the company outright. And so he and and he did so. 
he was able to buy the company outright. And there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about in this story. And of course, places, guys like Tim Pool have covered this really, really well. A lot of places covering this really, really well. I want to hit on a few different points, something that's a little bit more in the vein of been awake. And, and then we'll move on to the next story. So the fo- let's talk first about the folly of free speech absolutism. Because this is this is kind of this was one of the things kind of at the beginning of this was that um was that there was that Elon Musk had once said, and I haven't chased down where he said this in the quote, it's just one of those things that gets repeated on and on and on. But th- that that Elon Musk had said he was a free speech absolutist. So my friend P. Quinones over at the P. Quinones show, and uh by any means necessary on Substack, recently wrote a piece about being a free speech absolutist. And saying it's a proven, it's it's provably absurd to actually say that that's your position. And he writes, if your eight year old learns the the f word, do you let them blurt it out everywhere, even if you allow it in the home, which you really shouldn't with a child? How about in public? No, you wouldn't do that. And ask yourself why not. So I bet, and he and as he writes, he says, I bet a lot of it would have not only to do with your reputation in the community, but also because it just isn't done. It's culturally unacceptable. And and so I write, toddlers cursing while amusing at times is a cultural taboo. Conceivably, one could offer a, quote, free speech absolutist argument in favor of toddlers cursing. But outside an academic debate, I don't see how one could maintain the practice of toddlers cursing publicly. Again, happy to take this up. So if anybody's out there want to challenge me, feel free. So Pete writes recently, I've been, he says that he's recently been struggling with the concept of free speech within a political system. Paraphrasing, he questions whether a free press should be allowed to knowingly propagandize lies, collude with special interests, suppress competition, and amplify voices that advocate working against, that advocate against a working system, i.e. communists. The crux of his piece is fairly represented in the following two quotes, and we're going to get to the idea of what I think about free speech absolutism in a second. So he writes, we've been considered to believe a free press is essential to liberty, but a press that is free to tell lies commands a tyranny over the minds and souls of the people. I would hope through decades of endless war propaganda and especially the health tyranny of the last two years, people would at least be asking questions. So he contends that the idea of free speech is not only a myth, but a weapon used against us. We know it doesn't exist within a political system. Those of a differing and in the moment more powerful worldview will do everything they can to suppress your speech while championing theirs. This is a truth of politics that is not going away. When your enemy is in charge and dominates all discourse while actively suppressing yours, do you rationalize that they're the victors in the marketplace of ideas? Or do you, like Jesus, flip the tables and said marketplace and take back what was taken from you? So here's my analysis on free speech absolutism. So there's a few, and, and, I, and I kind of tried to put them into a few points. So first, that first point is the question, is a free press essential to liberty? And I write the boomer conception. So, and by boomer, I'm using that as a shorthand to represent prior generations who didn't live in the mass media, mass social media environment that millennials and, and below have come up in. The boomer conception of a free press, those institutions which hold power to account, is clearly essential to liberty under their framework of the world. So under their framework of the world. Clearly, though, the corporate press or mainstream media, as we often refer to them, does not actually take this form. 
So the so the the CNNs and the Fox Newses of the world don't aren't a free press. They're a corporate press, and they're a press that's based upon access. Most of the most of the journalism that you see on TV is predicated, and you can um, Cheryl Atkinson, the, the 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 reporter who eventually had to go out and do her own thing because she was being silenced by major organizations, talked about this very well. The concept is access journalism. So the journalism is not about holding people to account. The journalism is about having access to people at the top. And and as you might imagine, if you piss those people off, they're not really going to be too willing to enter to, to take your call anymore, as you might imagine. So the mainstream media does not take this form. But they use the cudgel of free press, rhetorically speaking, they take that they call themselves the free press to chastise regular Americans who despise their elitist and chaotic left wing perspective. To answer the question directly, no, a free press is not essential to liberty. And certainly the formal appearance of a free press, that is to say what we have in the United States, we have the formal appearance of a free press where the media is privately owned, so to speak does more to confuse the average citizen when trying to understand the ideological games being played across the cable news, across cable news, newspapers, magazines, Twitter, and so on. So the second point, is free speech a myth? Yes, free speech is a myth. But I would remind the reader and the listener, as I have elsewhere, that myth isn't just a pejorative for something that's not true. I discussed last year in a piece how free speech became an explicit political issue in America. In 2022, free speech is considered a right-wing opinion. Don't, no if and no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And if you're sitting there listening to this and say, I don't, I like free speech and I'm not right-wing, from the perspective of the left, you are. And it's time we start realizing that. Free speech in 2022 America is a right-wing position. That's how far away the left has gone. It is an ideal ideal held to by many normal Americans. Quoting from that piece, I wrote, For me, the freedom of speech has always been the recognition that, try as it might, a government cannot silence the minds of free men and women. Those who choose to remain free will always have their mind and their voice. The people at the top, the tyrants and thieves who refuse to accept this, are left with only one option. Violence to silence the opposition. This isn't to say, so let's make it clear, I'm not saying that every person's perspective is equally unique, valid, and worth listening to. It is to say that for many of us, tyrannical propaganda will never hold sway, and including a myth in our rhetoric, including a myth in our rhetoric, which is popular. So the third question, is free speech a weapon? Again, clearly yes, free speech is a weapon. It has been used to cudgel conservatives and the right into silence over and over generations has allowed the chaotic left to capture the university system, which in turn promulgates the ideology, which in turn promulgates its ideology throughout society. Today, however, free speech is considered a right wing position by all the important people in media and elsewhere. In fact, free speech has even been divorced from the idea of democracy. We have the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, saying as much. And certainly in the minds of most of the blue checkmark journalists on Twitter. Now that they hold power, 
The chaotic left doesn't need to use the weapon of free speech, and arguably, I think they are terrified at what a coordinated political right outside of the cult of American democracy can do with such a weapon, that weapon being free speech. It would be my contention that free speech, this is to say speaking and organizing against the chaotic left progressive culture, is a weapon that should not be abandoned simply because it has been used by the other side. And my last point on leftism and absolutism. I am fond of Charles Haywood's definition that leftism is, quote, maximal egalitarianism and maximal liberation. I think it captures very well the last point I want to make about free speech absolutism. As I indicate above, the absolutist position is one that a myriad of conservative personalities adopted in response to the censorious left. So first, the left abandons the idea of free speech and they move towards they move towards the idea of censorship. And in response to that move towards censorship, conservatives say, well, hey, I'm a free speech absolutist because that makes a lot of sense. Again, they're not philosophers. I understand how you can make the mistake. As I indicate above, the, the one is the myriad of conservative personalities adopted in response to the censorious left. By doing so, as the example of a toddler cursing demonstrates, they point out the absurdity within their position. The chaotic left thrives in areas of absurdity and absolutism because their default drive is one of maximalism. It is, a, it is anything without limit. That is, that is the core of what the chaotic left represents. Anything without limit. So anything, literally just put an X there, substitute it in. So free speech without limit. Well, that's, that's a leftist position. Clearly, clearly there are times where you should say things that you shouldn't say them elsewhere, right? Like, you know, at a funeral, maybe you don't, maybe you don't like, I don't know, go streaking or, you know, say that or say all the bad things about the person because somebody else there cared about them. It's just a time and place thing. You can be a jerk. You can be an asshole. I'm not telling you to stop doing that. I'm just clearly pointing out that in our everyday life, there are clearly instances where we can say more things than others. And there is company with which we can say more and be- more and different things than with others. So conservatives, as the uncreative lot they are, on average, did not see the trap being laid for them. Ultimately, an absolute position will enable chaotic elements to succeed because nothing made by man is absolute or eternal by definition. These are my thoughts as they stand to, as they stand today. I don't think a free press is what it's cracked up to be, but I don't think the American right needs to abandon free speech as an ideal. What they need to guard against is absurd and absolute positions that allow for chaotic leftists to gain a foothold. So that's what I have to say on the concept of free speech absolutism, and I bet if we were to chase down this story of uh the story of Elon Musk and where he had said that it was probably in response to a question of somebody saying, are you a free speech absolutist? And he's probably like, yeah, yeah, I am. The other point, the other thing I wanted to talk about with this story is just the irony of these journalists and the way that they operate. Because so as, as you can, as you can imagine, there have, there's been a full court. And of course we've all seen this. There's been a full court press against the likes of Elon Musk in the course of this, um, in the, in the course of this conversation. Now that he's admitted that he's got, now that he said he's going to buy it, he's suddenly a boogeyman that everybody must hate. 
mind you, the guy's like doing electric cars because he thinks that like climate change is a thing that's going to like kill the country and kill the world. So that's the big reason why he does it. He, you know, he's also somebody, he's also somebody that's figured out with a team of people how to bring rockets to space by private means. He's done a lot. He was on, he was, wasn't he on the PayPal team? Isn't that where he earned most of his money to begin with? Suffice it to say, he's done a lot in his life so far. He's also somebody, by the way, who takes a pro-human approach, generally speaking, even if some people would take exception to the fact that he wants to put a microchip in people willing to take a microchip, right? So he might have some of that transhumanism that people don't love, but he does take a pro-human approach within that, which is to say he's kind of a complicated guy. But what I love is the irony of these journalists writing stories like this. This is from the AP, written by three people, because I don't know why they do that. On Tuesday, Elon Musk said he would reverse Twitter's ban of former President Donald Trump, who was booted in January 2021 for inciting violence at the U.S. Capitol, provably false statement, should he succeed in acquiring the social platform for $44 billion. But the day before, the Tesla CEO also said he agrees with the European Union's new Digital Service Act, a law that will require big tech companies like Twitter, Google, and Facebook parent Meta to police their platforms more strictly for illegal or harmful content such as hate speech and and disinformation. Illegal and harmful content. So illegal and harmful content isn't child pornography. Illegal and harmful content isn't, you know, murders and rapes and and people being hurt and, you know, watching death and beheadings and all those, all that nasty stuff that'll stick with you for the rest of your life. No. Hurtful content in 2022 from the perspective of a fracking journalist is, is, is hate speech and disinformation. These are the same people, by the way, who want us to, who are writing articles to get us into war with Russia. But they care about hate speech. Mm-hmm. Now, they call this an apparent contradiction. And they say the apparent contradiction underscores the steep learning curve awaiting the world's richest man once he encounters the complexity of Twitter's content moderation in dozens of languages and cultures. Twitter has to comply with the laws and regulations of multiple countries, taking into account the reaction of advertisers, users, politicians, and others. And here is what I'd say to that. OUAP journalists who are probably making a decent living but have nowhere near the income that Elon Musk has. Nowhere near it. Why why do you expect that he hasn't thought of this and he just hasn't talked about it? Well, you think that you would. The reason why you think that way is because you fall victim to what I refer to as the egalitarian delusion, where you believe, probably because of some Rawlsian notion that you were taught in in uh, in undergrad, you believe that one person is exchangeable for another. That really, Elon Musk just got lucky. Had nothing to do with his upbringing, nothing to do with his intelligence, nothing to do with his hard work. That he really just got lucky. That's just dumb. Honestly, I find it to be such, and and it's prevalent. It's so prevalent through our society and the media perpetuates it so well that you don't even realize it when you see it. But like, these are three, these are three people. Three people had to get together to write this story. One person couldn't even do it alone. Mind you, I've said one, one person isn't enough. There's always people behind them. And so what Elon Musk can obviously do is bring some of the best people in the world to bear to make sure that they comply when, when, the, when the takeover of Twitter happens. And if moreover, 
Moreover, because you know what they what they really do in these situations is they demigog, right? They they create a rhetorical battle that doesn't actually have any effect on that doesn't actually have any bearing on reality, and it's meant to it's meant to influence your emotions because most people don't think they feel, and most people feel first and think later. Pretty much, pretty much, almost anybody feels first and thinks later, and so they want you to think, they want you to feel like you're justified in scoffing at the idea that Elon Musk could do any kind of change to Twitter. Of course, people like Tim Pool and others have pointed out, and Jack Posobiec, that there's been a lot of movement with right-wing Twitter commentators, that in fact, they've, they've suddenly seen their reach go out a lot farther. And by the way, in my own small way, I've noticed this too. I've noticed it's a lot easier for me to get a couple of likes on something, and I don't have a large Twitter profile quite just yet, but, you know, I'm working on it. Anybody who doesn't have a progressive opinion already understands the way that you are censored on social media if you express political positions. You already understand it. You started seeing it before 2016, and you really started to see it afterwards. There was a time, there was a time where I could Google whatever I wanted to and put the word Mises after it, and I would get the story that the Mises Institute put out about it, whether that story had been published 10, 20 years ago or not. These days, I have to go to DuckDuckGo for that. It's very, very common. The way that I would use Google has had to change as a result of these filters that they put into place. And they do have a progressive bias. Let us not, let us not, uh, let us not forget that. So these, the irony of these journalists thinking that like, like they see something that Elon Musk doesn't. It's so, and you have to understand, it's not actually about the, it's not actually about whether they believe it. It's about whether they can get you to believe it. So let's spend a couple minutes, and I kind of alluded to why it's, why it's important, why Twitter is so influential. And the reason why it's so influential is because so many people who write and who shape opinions for a living use it. See, there's been other stories in this, in this flurry of uh, attacks against Elon Musk that have said, well, pfft, you know, Facebook gets 1 billion users every single day. Twitter doesn't get anywhere near that. It's like, it's like why would he even bother taking over this social media network that's not even that important? Except you and I both know very well it's part of the reason why Donald Trump won the election in 2016. It's probably part of the reason why Barack Obama won his elections. In fact, Barack Obama was somebody who was praised for using social media in order to get out the vote. It's very influential because the people who are on it are influential people or people who are trying to be influential. And because we don't subscribe to the egalitarian delusion, we can understand that a massive influential platform like that would necessarily have fewer users. You also have to keep in mind too, like just the person who's willing to read words every day is not the average person. So you're seeing people who are arguably speaking above average. Trolls, you guys are kind of in a you guys are kind of in a different category there, but you know, suffice it to say you're probably smarter than the average idiot on Facebook. So the reason why Twitter is so influential is precisely because it's smaller and precisely because of the people who are on it. And I, and I venture to guess it will still remain as influential after Elon takes it over. Because, of course, the, bigger, the biggest question is, is Elon Musk some right winger? I don't know. I'd like, to think that he, I'd like to think that he has aspirations that would be in line with my own, but I won't pretend to answer those. Generally speaking, I like what I see from him and I like what I hear from him. I find him to be an interesting person with interesting things to say. 
because he's done a lot in his life. The same way in which, by the way, somebody uh, like somebody like a Jeff Bezos has something has interesting things to say. So I don't know if Elon's on my side, but I do know he's a better businessman than Jeff Bezos for the standpoint of he's buying Twitter and Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. Really, what's the difference? The difference is Twitter is a 21st century mechanism of, informa- of, of disseminating information and the Washington Post is dying. Do you want to talk about abortion? I don't I, I think we might I think we might go quickly through this, but I did want to get these thoughts out there, but kind of before the news cycle shifts again off of this. So if you haven't seen the news, the news is that read that there was a recent link from the leak from the Supreme Court. These this is this is very uncommon. I think it's happened like a couple of times in US history, but it's really not that common for there to be a leak from the Supreme Court, and certainly not a leak of an entire opinion. And what this opinion does is it overturns Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade was the U.S. Supreme Court decision that claimed that claimed through the 14th Amendment that the, um, I believe it was the 14th Amendment, that there is an inherent right to privacy and that that right to privacy included a woman's right to get an abortion. And so therefore, it instantiated as a matter of federal law abortion across the United States ending the life of a baby in the womb or a fetus doesn't matter still life i don't think there's a bigger wedge issue in america than abortion immigration's another one we actually kind of talked about we we talked about one of the other big ones and i and i've always said these wedge issues serve the cult of american democracy they serve this cult that endeavors to create a system in which people are arguing with each other and not paying attention to the people at the top. And abortion was abortion has been and will continue to be one of these big issues. And, and so that, that leaves open the question of why. And I'm going to try to answer that a little bit today. But first, I'd like to... Uh, well, well, first, given that this is my show, given that this is such an important topic, I feel, and given that I don't talk about this issue a lot, I feel it's incumbent upon me to share my perspective. Now, in general, I have I have I do not like talking about the abortion issue with people. And the reason why I don't like talking about it is because it is precisely one of those issues where the moral framework is completely divided. There's no more there, there's no there, there's really no there's really no sharing the stage with somebody who's going to advocate for abortion up to the up to the ninth month and somebody who thinks that life begins at conception. Those are two completely different. Those moral frameworks have such a gap between them, you could create a new ocean. The moral frameworks at play behind those. And, it, and, it's, and it's, it's done that by design. And so I don't like to talk about abortion for that reason. And because people feel the need, because this is one of those wedge issues of the cult of American democracy, because this is one of those things that... <clears throat> If you're a citizen in the know, you must have an opinion on this. It is one of those issues that people will argue with you about ad infinitum. You, you can ruin a dinner if you start talking about abortion. If you're in the if you're in mixed company, that's we've all experienced this, I'm sure, on whatever side you fall on. I've always said that about abortion. I've also, by the way, always said, when in doubt, let a woman talk about it. 
See, I'm not going to give somebody the benefit of saying, of dismissing my opinion just because I'm a man. No, I'll go find the strong women I know in my life and elsewhere and in public life who do just as good, if not a better job, talking about this issue of abortion. Because if you say it's a woman's issue, fine. I have an opinion, but I will let other, I'll let other people talk about it. Now, again, this is my show. So if you're here, you're interested in my opinion. So I will talk about it within this context. But I would be a little reticent to, let's say, accept a debate proposition on the on the subject of abortion. Again, I'd probably take it given that I'm trying to do this public intellectual thing. The point stands. In general, I have always said I've always kind of in my in my everyday life, right? In my everyday life, I, I try to refrain from having the conversation with people who I disagree with. And if I'm going to get into that conversation, I'm looking for people I can ally with so I can make sure there isn't the perception that this is just a man talking to a woman. Again, I recognize the differences between men and women. So why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I do something like that? But what I've always said about abortion has very little to do with what I've always believed. And what I've always believed is that abortion is murder. Or at the very least, killing. Again, as I said, whether you call it a fetus or a baby, you're still ending a life. There's only one thing that that child, <laughs> that that clump of cells can become. We're all clumps of cells, by the way. I'm a clump of cells talking to a bunch of other clump of cells into a, into a device that's another clump of cells. We're all clumps of cells. Cells are the building blocks of life. I've, always, I've, I've, never, I've never believed that abortion is, is right. You could potentially, I suppose, justify it in, in those rare instances that people always like to bring up. But I don't think that those rare instances need to be a matter of policy. So I've always believed abortion is wrong. And what has always bothered me until I've kind of learned more about what the left truly is, and we kind of got into that before, is why people would lie so much in the context of the rhetorical debate. And the lie, of course, is the conflation between abortion and contraception. The words themselves mean a different thing. If you're aborting something, it's already started. If you're using, if you if you engage in contraception, you're stopping something before it begins. See the words, the words betray their cause already. That's one of the reasons, by the way, they have to rely so much on rhetoric and why they have to rely so much on the emotional manipulation that they do. So you say, oh, but her body, her choice, and I say, yes, she had a choice whether or not to have sex. She had a choice not to use contraception, and it's not the child's fault that that happened. See, that's the real, that's the real kicker is that I, 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 I don't know the, the degree to which you have to twist yourself into knots to believe that like you, that like that thing is, that thing isn't human. I've even heard women utilize the, like the rhetoric of, of an alien growing inside of them. And that's so sad because this is like one of the most natural things in human existence, the progenation of the species. So I've, I've always believed abortion was wrong, and I don't know that you're going to convince me otherwise, but you're welcome to try. But what I, what, what I never quite understood is why these idiots would lump in contraception with abortion. And of course, the reason for that is twofold. One, there are dummies out there who also will say that contraception is just as bad as abortion. And two, because it benefits the left, the chaotic leftist narrative, which is a narrative without limits. So there is no such thing as borders. There are no such thing as borders. There are no such thing as, as uh, 
well, there's really that. There's no such thing as categorization or differences between this and that or that, you know, one and two. These things are all the same. And so what they do then is they conflate that conception and they say, well, this is also about contraception, even though, you know, if you look like a group that's very anti-abortion, like Catholics, a lot of Catholics still use contraception, even though the church teaches that you're not supposed to use even like birth control or condoms. Why? Well, because in the grand scheme of things, isn't it marginally less bad to not start a pregnancy than it is to stop one that has already started? That's, again, that's, that's my view on these things. But that really doesn't answer the other side. And again, I, again, to the point, this is a wedge issue. So this isn't really about, I don't really think we're at a point where we can convince another side of it. And again, we go back to cracks in the foundation. I think that's one of the reasons why this story was leaked. Interesting enough, let's not forget that they kind of forced, what's his face, Justin, Justice Breyer into retirement. They kind of forced him into retirement. He wasn't planning to announce his retirement. And that was how they got um, Kentaji, is it Jackson Brown or Brown Jackson? I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Um, but Kenta- but that's how they got the new, the first woman African-American Supreme Court nominee on the court, was they kind of forced this guy into retirement. So we're seeing, and 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 why does this matter? This matters because the Supreme Court has kind of been like the tribal elders of the United States, if you will. I think Jeff Deist wrote Jeff Deist wrote a re- recent article where they kind of talked about it as a, where he talked about it as a super legislature. So it's like a legislature on top of the legislature. I, I think that like the these are supposed to these are people that are your perception as the average citizen is that these are people who know more than you, and so therefore they are the ones who have uh, who have the final who can have final say. These are the people who are you know arguably the smartest legal minds in the world. Or again, that's the perception you're supposed to have, whether or not, whether or not how, d- doesn't matter how accurate that actually is. And in, and in the course of American politics for the last 50 years, again, we're talking about a post-World War II order, the Supreme Court has had that final say, including a reticence to overturn their own case law. And this marks a change for that. And that change happened because, well, in fact, because Donald Trump got to nominate three people and he happened to nominate one good one and like two okay ones. And so that changes the makeup of the court. The same thing happened, by the way, in Roosevelt's time, which is why Roosevelt packed the court. So you see, when the tools are used in reverse in the cult of American democracy, when the conservatives of the right get a minor win, Because this isn't even like, this doesn't even say abortion is illegal. This merely creates the system that should have existed in the first place as far as a constitutional order is concerned and let the states decide for themselves. But I think all of these stories, abortion, Elon buying Twitter, and the Ukraine war signal are are, are the changing times in American politics and therefore politics of the world. These are the cracks in the foundation that one day we'll look back on and say, oh, yeah, that's kind of where it started. As it stands, I don't, I don't, as it stands, I'm more worried about like the legislatures of Louisiana going too far in their, because they're, I think right now in, in Louisiana, I think they're trying to pass a bill that says abortion is murder. And I, and, and the reason why I think that might be going too far is because that makes, that's going to make it a lot easier for people to challenge it in the court. I think heartbeat laws are a great idea. I think because, again, a beating heart is a signal of life. 
brain activity is a signal of life. And that happens a couple weeks after abort, after the heart, the heart beats. So whatever we want to use for this, I think if you go, I think if, I think if the conservatives go a little too far, they're going to find themselves in federal court and you're going to see a Supreme Court that overturns an overturning of a ruling. It's possible. Again, that's just kind of where, as, as I sit and as I see, that's where I see things are. That, that's, where I see, that's where I see things as they are. That's kind of where I see things going. Well, I hope you guys liked today's show. It was uh, it was fun, and um, hope you like the new format. There's going to be, and don't forget, go to binawake.com. Find me on social media at the LB Muniz. If you like what you heard today, go to binawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not. One with the woke.